Let me add my welcome to the welcome Paul's already given you. If you're uh, new or visiting or passing through, it's great that uh, you're able to join us this morning as we meet in the name of the Lord Jesus. I do hope that you're able to stay around and join us for morning tea and uh, so we can get to know one another a little better. Uh, these days it seems that uh, sex and politics have now become uh, at least moderately acceptable conversations you can have with people, uh, which leaves pretty much money as the only unmentionable. Uh, we complain about having too much small talk in society, uh, but next time you meet someone, let me, let me you know, just see what happens if you decide to cut through all the small talk and go straight to the massive talk and just say to someone, oh, hi, what do you do? How much do you earn then? And see what happens. You know, money talk is awkward, and I'm aware of that. Uh, Dorothy Rowe, uh, an Australian uh, psychologist and writer, she puts uh, the awkwardness we have about talking about money down to, to shame, humiliation and envy. That is, we, because money is such a measure of success, there's, there's shame in either having you know, too little or, or arrogance in, in having too much, and so we, we kind of feel like we can't talk about it. And, and if we do know what others earn, for many of us to know exactly someone else's worth leads you either to envy or disdain. So it's an awkward conversation. Uh, and yet we need to talk about it. Uh, and more importantly, we need God to address us in this area. Uh, there are lots of reasons why this actually should be part of our conversation appropriately and sensitively uh, with one another. Uh, I'm going to suggest three for you. Um, one, it's a massive part of life. You know, even if you're not the kind of person who is consumed by your bank account daily, you know, you may not be the kind of person who lies awake wondering about interest rates. Still, money is just a huge part of life. We can't escape that fact. Just consider for a moment all the things that you have planned for this week that you couldn't do if you had no access to any money, if it just cut off this instant. No rides anywhere, no refilling petrol, no buying food, no, the list goes on. Uh, secondly, God's got a lot to say about it. Uh, someone I read uh, suggested that money features 30 times more often than sex does in the scriptures. Uh, I haven't checked. It sounded reasonable, though. Uh, you know, from explicit teaching about wealth in Proverbs to, to God's promises to bless the, the patriarchs like Abraham to, to Jesus' continued, uh, I suppose, illustration of spiritual issues in stories about money, uh, to those really dire and obvious warnings in Scripture like greed is idolatry in Colossians 3. You know, God has lots to say on this important topic. And the third reason why I think we need to talk about it for the next few weeks is it could well be a spiritual blind spot. Uh, a few years ago in the evening, uh, Paul preached on 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, which has some really countercultural things to say about men and women. Uh, and I know that some people actually chose not to come to church that week just because they knew what the passage was. And I also remember Paul very sensitively and appropriately giving lots of disclaimers at the start of that sermon. And then a few weeks later, I was preaching on 1 Timothy 6, which um, has the famous line, the misquoted line, uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I remember being a bit sad because I didn't have to give any disclaimers about a countercultural passage. And no one, as far as I know, skipped church that week because I was preaching on money and on 1 Timothy 6. Perhaps it's because greed has become a whitewashed sin. Uh, a priest shared how, in a lifetime's work, he'd heard all sorts of confessions, but never once had he heard someone confess to being greedy. So we need to have this conversation. 
Uh, and I mean, when I say conversation, I mean it. Yes, expect me when you come for the next few weeks to be monologuing at you uh, in the sermon, but use it as fuel to be talking with one another about this important aspect of our Christian lives. Um, you know, morning tea is fantastic for it, but, but even beyond that, be talking with one another. Uh, so over the next few, few weeks, three weeks, this and two after, we're going to work hard at thinking Christianly about money uh, or liquid power, as I've called this series. Uh, now, I'm not going to say everything that could possibly be said from the scriptures about money. Uh, you know, I'm not going to go from kind of Genesis to Revelation and, and, and read out every passage that mentions wealth. We're not doing a biblical theology of wealth and possessions. Um, instead, what we're going to do over three weeks is we're going to look at how doctrinal themes shape our approach to money. So this week, we're going to see how a godly understanding of power shapes what we understand money to be and what it's for. Uh, next week, we'll look at how godly love shapes the way we spend. Uh, and in the final week, we'll see how true worship guards us from the threat, that spi- the, the spiritual threat that money poses to us. That's where we're heading. Uh, we need to pray uh, that I suppose it would, God would speak to us clearly. And then we're going to have the Bible read by Camilla and Graham. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we give you thanks for the goodness of your word. And as we are about to hear it now, we ask that you would speak clearly to us by your word and spirit. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be revealing to us where we want to dodge the hard bits of your word. But at the same time, Father, give us the comfort that your word offers as well. Uh, Father, transform us by your word to think the way you think and act the way that would please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Camilla's going to come up and grind too. first reading this morning is from Psalm 66 and that can be found on page 410 of the Bibles that you were given as you came in and we're reading the whole chapter. Shout with joy to God all the earth, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. Say to God how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praise to your name. Come and see what God has done, how awesome his works in man's behalf. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you, vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. Come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. 
Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. The second lesson is taken from the book of Corinthians, one verses one eighteen to twenty five on page eight hundred and seventeen. For the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, the power it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God, has God, has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, the, for since in the wisdom of God, the world for its wisdom cannot did not know him. God was pleased for the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are God, whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, is Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wise and the man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than the man's strength. This is the word of the Lord. I speak to God. Thanks, Camilla, and thanks, Graham. Uh, before we launch in, I'm going to be uh, looking at lots of passages. You might want to jot them down rather than attempt to look them up because I'm not going to give you any time to find them. Uh, and let's as well make sure we're on the same page. Uh, I speak as one powerful person to other powerful people. Uh, for money is power. Uh, every dollar that you have in your pocket, uh, every number in your bank account is a point of the truth that you are powerful people. A quote from uh, Robert Guest's book on uh, Africa. He's a journalist there. He's lived in all sorts of Africa for many years uh, from the shackled continent. He puts it well. I'll always be an outsider in Africa. I've never been poor or oppressed. I grew up in a country where African-style poverty has been unknown for generations. When I wander around Africa, I do so wrapped in the armour that money provides. Where there is violence, I can afford to stay in a hotel with security guards. Where there is sickness, I can buy medicine. Where there is hunger, I can always find something to eat. Africa constantly reminds me how lucky I am to have grown up in a rich, peaceful country. Now, there might be variations, I realise, of power here today in this room, but the fact that we are here in this room is a sign that we are powerful. Uh, For money is power. Uh, It's powerful because it's got this great capacity to buy work, you know, work is where things actually get done and what money does is it lets us store that work and, and it lets us make that work flexible. Uh, to put it another way, it is liquid power. 
You know, money can be changed into so many types of work. Uh, you know, with money, you can get people to, to build houses for you. You can uh, get them to make cars for you. You can get them to clean your house for you. You can get them to cook your meal and clean up afterwards. It transfers all these forms of work and moves them from one to the other. It's so much better than the bartering system. Uh, and, of course, money, it wouldn't be powerful. It, it, it wouldn't work if, if it couldn't buy work, <laughs> to say the same twice. It would be like a stash of monopoly money to be useless or like a Zimbabwean dollar. You know, the power of money is the work that it can do and the flexibility in getting different types of work. And so every time you, who is a powerful person, reach into your wallet and you pull out one of these, by the way, if you were with us a little while ago and we looked at Galatians, I handed out a nail to remind you of that, to remember the cross of Christ and his sacrifice. I'm not using that illustration this week, just, uh, just in case you were wondering, um, just demonstration model. Every time you pull out one of these, though, from your wallet, you are making a choice to exert power. And each time you reach there, you must consider, what does God teach about power? There are three things I want you to remember as we each time look at our notes in the wallet. One, that God is all-powerful. Two, that God uses power for power shamefully. And thirdly, that God uses his power to serve others. Okay, let's look at the first one. God is all-powerful. Uh, that's the tone of what Camilla read to us in Psalm 66, that God is the one who does deeds so awesome his enemies cringe. Um, 66 verse 7, he rules forever by his power. Um, it's said a little more explicitly in 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12. Yours, O Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendour. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honour come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. See, all power is God's. Uh, He owns everything. He made everything. Beyond that, he rules everything. You know, he is exalted as head over all. Um, Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen puts it beautifully. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. you know, let's be honest, there are times in life uh, that are difficult and painful. Uh, there are times of suffering we experience and we ask those questions of why. We see it in other parts of the world and other people's lives and we wonder why when there is a, a good God and they are hard questions... But the Bible never allows us to say that something is beyond God's power or his control. We can't fall back on that defence. It's no defence at all. For the truth is God is all-powerful. And he exalts some and he brings others down. And we may not always understand why he is doing that, but we must always affirm what the angel says in Luke 1 verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God, for he is all-powerful. And while God is all-powerful, the amazing thing is he does, he entrusts his power to people. Again, in 1 Chronicles 29, wealth and honour come from you. It goes on in verse 14, everything comes from you. He hands it over to people. He entrusts it to them. Daniel 2, verse 36 and following, um, Daniel is there explaining to the greatest king of the day, uh, the, the superpower, he's a pagan Babylonian, and yet even he only enjoys his wealth and position because God placed these things in his care. 
Julia Gillard may not acknowledge that there is even a God and yet she has no power apart from that which God has placed in her care. All power is God's and amazingly he entrusts his power to us. And so each time you go and you you reach into the pocket and each time you see that note and each time you pull out your credit card, remember this, God is all-powerful and that has implications. First of all, it implies that the power is actually good. Power is not inherently evil. It's not something to be ashamed of. If God is powerful, then power is good. And so is the liquid power of money. Christians don't hate money and they don't hate power. Being poor does not mean that you are ungodly, nor does being rich. It doesn't mean you're godly either. (laughs) Money, though, is good. When, of course, you approach it knowing the all-powerful God. That's the second implication of that. That no power is really ours. Since all power is God's, we are only ever stewards of what he entrusts to us. Now, I, I don't doubt that many of you here, many of us here, have worked hard to be where we are. You've worked hard and you've built your situation and built your wealth. But let me say it was only possible because of the health and the abilities and the talent and the circumstances God gave you. you know, had God placed you in the poorest family in Angola, uh, which, as far as I understand, is the country in the world with the shortest life expectancy, had he placed you there, all the same amount of hard work, you would never be sitting here today. Now, all power is really God's, and it's still his, even if he places it in your care for a while. You know, having money means that, yes, you do have power over some parts of his creation, but you don't own it. And so not only are we accountable to God for every dollar that we spend, but to use it in a way that is counter the purposes of God is not just stupid, it's not just foolish, it's actually robbery. Because it's not yours. You know, that's the logic of Matthew 25. We won't read it now, but read it later on. It's the parable of the talents. Uh, in short, God entrusts to his people differing amounts of money to invest and utilise for the kingdom in the parable. And then he calls it to account. You know, we are, in effect like investment managers for God. Now, for for us to use the liquid power Christ has entrusted us for the purposes that account are his, would be just as corrupt as an investment manager. You know, you've entrusted your money to them and they've gone off and decided, no, I'm going to spend it however I want and ignore your advice completely. Uh, That's illegal as far as I understand. (laughs) Uh, Because in the end, it's robbery. It's not just stingy, it's not just miserly, it's theft. Uh, So in Malachi 3, Israel is accused by God of robbing him because they won't bring the tithes and offerings he's requested from them. They won't use their wealth his way, they are robbing him. Because all power is God's, when you sit down and you budget, the question is not, what do I want to do with my money? It's what would God have me do with his money? Which brings us to the second thing we need to consider about the way God uses his power. God uses his power in shameful ways. At least, I want to suggest, it's shameful to anyone with the right mind. Uh, you know, God has all this power and yet it's controlled by his character. Uh, we can't limit him and yet he is limited by himself. So there are things God can't do. God can't lie. God can't be unfaithful. And, and this character combined with all the power that he has, he then goes and, G, and, and, and the living God acts disgracefully. 
that was our reading that Graham brought to us in 1 Corinthians 1. Yeah, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, it's the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power and God, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God stronger than man's strength. You know, with all the power that God possessed, He exerts it stupidly. You know, when God reveals Himself most clearly in the world, it's it's in the disgrace of a convicted criminal uh, hanging on a, a machine of torture. Weak. I think over time, um, unhelpfully, what we've done is is we've kind of you know cleaned up the cross. We we make it brassy like the one at the back and it kind of looks nice and it shines or, or you know as others have put it we, we we wreathe it in roses that is we we knock off the rough edges and the, the fact that it's a kind of torture instrument bit and, and we just make it a kind of nice appealing it's you know striking and bold and it's very clear and we just kind of clean it up and we've dulled it of its harshness and we've made it sensible instead of the stupidity that it is because yeah, first and foremost the the crucified Christ is the symbol of of a man forsaken by God. More than that, it, it, the cross is where God is dead. God becomes non-God, if that can be. You know, death wins, Satan triumphs, God abandons God. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann writes, Christians who, who don't have the feeling that they must flee the crucified Christ have probably not yet understand him in a sufficiently radical way. You know, he's an embarrassment. God used his power in such a way that any right-minded, sensible person would see it was a bit silly, wasn't it? And keep their distance. And before we talk about why, we've got to see that, that, that aspect of God's use of power has implications again. You know, we should expect that the way that we as people who know the cross use our money will be counterintuitive to the way the world thinks. Now, to those who rely on their calculator rather than the cross, uh, the Christian exertion of power will seem stupid. Um, John Wesley uh, lived by principle. Make all you can, save all you can. Anyone know it? Give all you can. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. So as a young man, he earned uh, 30 pounds annually. This is a while ago. Uh, <laughs> and he worked out he could live off 28 and give two away. Uh, the following year, his salary doubled. Not a bad increase. Uh, he realised he could live just as well on the old standard of living. And so he gave the entire increase away and didn't change the way he lived. And to the sensible world, he was a fool. A shameful use of power. And deep down, you know, even though we hear the story and we admire it and think, wow, what a guy, we're desperately thinking in our minds, yeah, but there's reasons why I can't do that. Yeah, I know, I mean, that was great that he could do it, but I'm aware that, you know, my situation is a little different to Wesley's and, you know, 21st century and all, and, you know, because it's foolish, isn't it? Yeah, the use of God's power so shamefully is not just an invitation to look a fool, it's also an invitation to use our money more sensibly and our power more sensibly. Because we use money with an eternal perspective rather than the short term of this world. That's why the world says it is foolish. But to again pick up with Wesley, he said, I judge all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. Which brings me to the third aspect of God's power. You know, why he uses his power shamefully? He uses it for the good of others. 
You know, we see it in lots of ways, don't we? You know, in creation, uh, Genesis 1, if you know it, um, God powerfully speaks with a word and brings everything to be. He uses his power, but the refrain that runs through it, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. You know, good for him, good for us. His creation is good. Uh, we see it in the way that you know, he, he provides so well, his power used for good. You know, Matthew 5.45 reminds us that he doesn't just uh, give rain to, to people who love him, but he sends rain on the fields of both the righteous and the unrighteous. He, he uses power for the good of others. Uh, you know, he does it when he saves. Psalm 20, there's a great line. Someone cries to him for help and God answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. You know, we see it in, in his power exerted for good in the way that he, he preserves Christian peoples. 1 Peter 1 talks about how uh, it's through faith we are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation revealed in the last time. That is, no one will stay a Christian. None of us here will stay Christians except that God uses his power for our good and works in us to keep us holding on to him. You know, and of course, most clearly we see it in, in the life and death of Jesus, don't we? Power for good. Uh, in Luke 6, read, we're not going to read all Luke's gospel now. Luke's gospel is a great one, though, for seeing power used for good. You know, in Luke 6, you see Jesus there using his power, power coming out of him for healing the sick. Uh, in Luke 9 and 10, he does this incredible thing. He, he hands his power over to the disciples. So he gives them authority over demons and, and the spiritual decay of this world and the physical decay of this world. And it's not that they can make cash out of it. In fact, in Acts 8, somebody sees what's going on, a guy called Simon the Magician. He sees that kind of power and he says, I'd love to buy that from you. How much can I give you to get that kind of power? And he is cursed for it. Because that power that Jesus gives and uses is only ever that they use it like him for the good of others, never for themselves. You know, the clearest picture, of course, is the cross, isn't it? You might remember Mark 15 words of mockery as people go past and they see Jesus hanging there. And what do they say? They say, you know, he saved himself, but he can't save himself. He saved others, but he can't save himself. You know, come down from the cross and save yourself. When, of course, he could have. He had the power to, you know, get a legion of angels to come and, you know, wipe out everyone there. He could have stepped off at any moment. And yet... He used his power not for himself, but for the good of others. It's 1 Corinthians 1, isn't it? To us being saved, it's the power of God. You know, as we look to the cross, we see what power is for, for benefiting others. And again, I want to say that that shapes how you spend your dollars. You know, cash, liquid power, it's, it's not for self-promotion, it's for helping others. It's, to put it another way, it is for relationships. Yeah, that's the, the logic if you read the parable in Luke 16. Um, there's this dishonest, dodgy manager. He's called the shrewd manager by some. Uh, and uh, for all his shonky deals, he is commended for a few things. He's commended because he sees what money is for. It's for making friends or serving people. And he sees money in light of bigger, long-term pictures. Yeah, so, so when we go to, to using our money, our, our primary motivation in, in financial deals is not to make money. It's actually to discover new ways to love. So if you get a block of land and you've got your place ready to develop, you don't do it simply for profit. You, you need to ask, will the development serve the community? You know, in business, we must make sure our deal actually benefits other people, not that you just clear a bigger profit. Now, don't mishear me. It doesn't mean you can't make money, won't make money. It doesn't mean that profit is wrong. In fact, it can be great to have profit because then you can do more to have power to serve other people. 
What's the difference? It's not the goal. It's the side effect. The goal is serving others. It will mean that you take some of your money and you give some of it away. You will give it away to some people who are in need. You'll give it away to organisations that help people who are in need. But it won't mean you give it all away. You know, we will spend some of our money on ourselves, but the money we even we spend on ourselves is not for ourselves. It's so that we might serve others. You know, be, put it this way. Friendship costs money. You know, think for a moment. Is there a single relationship where you have never spent any money in connection with it? Just think of one single relationship where um, you've never you know, spent money on a phone call, uh, you've never shared a coffee or a drink or a meal, you've, you've never worn clothes when you went to see them, uh, you've never spent money in getting there on petrol, having a car, in catching public transport. You know, we're real and therefore, relationships being real cost money. You know, each week, I spend money at coffee shops. Um, probably quite a bit of money, actually. But it's never about the coffee. I'm actually buying time and space to meet up with people so that we can chat and pray and read the Bible and share our lives and encourage each other. That's what I'm spending my money on, on people. Yet power is to be used for others. And now I know it's going to look different for each of us and that's why we need to converse with each other and talk to each other. We have different incomes. We, we have different situations. Some of you need to make long-distance calls, not local calls, to keep up with people. And so it'll be different. But the principle is we use power for others' good. They're good now and they're good for eternity. As Ricky Alcorn writes, abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It is, is his provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with this money, not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. So I spoke this morning as a powerful person to other power brokers. Uh, but I want us to be aware all the time of where real power resides. You know, it is not here in this note. It is in the God who gives all. And when it comes to our money, the best aid we can ever have is not a calculator, but it's the cross of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we give you thanks for your great power and we praise you for it. And we praise you that you use your power not self-interestedly but so generously that you would love even your enemies. Father, thanks that you would use your power to be shamed in the eyes of the world that we might find life. And Father, we ask that with the power you've entrusted to us, you would help us use it in such a way that is pleasing to you, brings you honour and remembers why you've entrusted it to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.